Amen. Thank you, Lynn. Um, it, it's technically the same series, but we're moving to volume two. Those of you who like uh, kind of you know, the, the, the Marvel movies will, will get that. Uh, we're in volume two, which basically means I'm up encouraging you to open your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1, and uh, we're going to start part two of this series. Now, as you turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1, let me give you some uh, background context. The context is that this was obviously written from Paul to Timothy. Uh, Paul is in prison once again. Some question about where did he go to prison from. Some commentators think it was from Ephesus that he managed to get to Timothy. I don't believe that that's the case. I believe from the end of 2 Timothy, where Paul says, Timothy, when you come to me, would you bring my parchments, my writings, and my cloak that I left in uh, Troas, I think he was arrested unexpectedly at Troas, never uh, got to uh, see Timothy again, because even though the end of 2 Timothy ends with, hey, come to me quickly, um, it, it looks like he never arrived. And that's because um, the date of this is around the fall of uh, 67, and uh, Paul uh, would be executed in the winter of 67 or the early months of AD 68. And by the way, the, call, uh, the perpetrator of all of this is Nero. He died by assisted suicide in June of AD 68. He, according to Catholic tradition, had killed Peter, and now he wanted to kill Paul, and he just blamed uh, the Christians for everything that was going wrong in his own empire. He was a coward, didn't want to face justice, and so ended his life in a, in a miserable way. That's not a, a moral comment there, by the way, on suicide. That's just basically the way that it unfolded. But hopefully all of this will show you how twisted and messed up life for the Christian was in the Roman Empire at this point in time. It was not easy. It was not easy to be a follower of Jesus. But more than that, it was actually not easier to be a leader in the church of Jesus. And so Paul is writing this letter recognizing that his life is about to come to an end. Commentators will call this his last will and testament, but these are more, it's more likely to be parting words where Paul is trying to tie up loose ends. When you come to the end of your life, one of the things you want to do is to be able to tie up loose ends. And one of the loose ends that Paul had was uh, Timothy, his young protege. He wanted to go to Timothy and give him some final instructions about leading the church in Ephesus. Timothy had been there for over four years at this point, and it wasn't easy. It was a, a difficult place to be, being what was it, the second largest city in the empire at that point in time. It, it was very difficult. And so Paul writes these words, trying to help Timothy understand what was truly important to Paul. And that's what we're going to focus on over the next four weeks. We're going to look at what I would call Paul's personal values. If you think about Paul writing what he knew would probably be his last written communication to Timothy, you would recognize that what we have in this letter is what was important to Paul. And so when I went at first to study this letter, I studied it with, with that uh, perspective in mind. What I have here is what was truly important to Paul. 
What I have here is values. And, and so I looked at this, this letter trying to discern what was it that was really important to Paul. How do I summarize this? And uh, I did that because I, I co-wrote a commentary on Second Timothy, and we wanted to be able to, to kind of nail this down into a simple outline. And, and what we discovered as we did that was that there were four values that seemed to be littered throughout this letter and the more I looked at these values, I recognized that these values were littered across every letter that Paul ever wrote, the sermons that he preached and the, the teachings that he gave. What we have here are Paul's values. Personal values show the principles that you live by every day and the priorities that you set. You could say that personal values are essentially your basic set of beliefs. They help determine what you're going to do on any given day. They help you identify whom you want to be, how you want to live, and how you're going to in interact with other people. There's a sense in which values connect to your sense of self. It's as if your values cry out, albeit in sign language, this is who I am, this is what is truly important to me. And so in this letter, Paul tells Timothy what is truly important to him. And, and when we read it, we recognize that there were four values that were important. In a sense, what we see is that there were four keys to living faithfully and dying fulfilled. And Paul is saying to Timothy, Timothy, uh, what was important to me, I want to be important to you. And if you put these values into practice, then you will live faithfully to Christ and you will die fulfilled. Now, through, the, uh, through this series, we're going to jump into that, but if you want to dig into that more deeply, you can download the second version, the new version of the Companion Guide for Second Timothy. Again, you know what to do here. We use these QR codes. Take up your phone. You can point it to the screen. You'll be able to download this, and you'll be able to work through this in more detail, because I do believe that these four values are not only important to Timothy, they're also important to you and me. If you want to live faithfully and die fulfilled, you can do a lot worse than putting these four values into practice in your own life. So four values for living faithfully and dying fulfilled. What are those four values? Be. Be what you were called to be. Know. Know who you are and whose you are. Live. Live faithfully devoted to Christ in all you do. And lastly, reproduce. Entrust the Christ in you to other people. If you want to know what was important to Paul, that's it. Be. Over and over again, Paul would say, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. He knew what he was called to be. Let me ask you, do you know what you're called to be? 
Today, I'm going to jump into the, the first of these values, chapter one, but I also want to give an overview of all four of them for you to see how scattered they are throughout this book. I'm picking out one value. We're picking out one value in each chapter. I'm going to do B. Uh, Pastor Dan Seaborn will do no next week. I'll be back up for week number three doing live, and then Pastor Corey Easter Sunday will talk about the, the significance of reproducing, being able to reproduce, because Christ is not dead. He is ultimately alive. So what I want to do is I want to start with B. You can see a graphic on the screen there. That will just basically show you what is in the companion guide on pages 22 and 23. Be what you were called, you are called to be. Now, this whole idea of being is based on identity. Chapter 1 basically is, is about the identity that Timothy has as a child of God that basically gives him what he needs to do God's will even when Paul is absent. Paul, if you note verse 1 of 2 Timothy chapter 1, notes that he is an apostle by the will of God. It is the will of God that called him to be an apostle. So however Paul felt about his situation, he knew that he was called to be an apostle. Let me ask you this obvious question. Do you know what you were called to be? There's a lot of emphasis on, do you know what you were created to do? Do you know what you were called to be? Do you know that? Paul knew what he was called to be. But what's interesting is Paul never, ever described himself as a Christian. The term Christian is used three times in the New Testament, and, and the likelihood is, or the reality is, that it's not always a compliment. When the word Christian is used in the New Testament, it, it, it's almost like a, saying, in Holland at least, did you know he's a Democrat? <laughs> oh, my daughter lives in Chicago. It would be, do you know he's a Republican? Or in the church world, we may say something like, Oh, they're liberal. Or if they're liberal, they may well say, oh, they're just fundamentalist evangelicals. The word Christian in the New Testament is used three times, and the likelihood is, it is, is that it isn't positive. Paul never described himself as being a Christian. Now, when Paul refers to who he is, he actually says, I am in Christ. Seventy times he uses that phrase, about 70 times, he uses that phrase in Christ, in his writings. In fact, forms of this, you've got en Christo, in Christ, ice Christo, which is basically into Christ. There's a subtle difference between the two. Forms of this actually appear about 150 times in his writings. This is basically how Paul defines himself. He doesn't define himself as a Christian. He defines himself as someone who is in Christ. He uses that phrase, and that's why I pick it up, three times in chapter 1. He basically says in verse 1, I am in Christ. The, the life that I have is actually in Christ. You want to know how Paul could, could basically go through suffering with such hope? It's because he recognized that, some of you need to listen to this, he was in Christ. And if he was in Christ, then Christ's life 
is actually his life because if he's in Christ, Christ is in him. And that means that how Christ lived is how he lives. If Christ suffered, why should I be surprised if I suffer? That's why Jesus says in this world you will have trouble. And yet so many of us, we want to be in Christ, but somehow we're not comfortable when being in Christ results in the very life of Christ, including suffering, actually being the type of life that we live. Wow. He uses it again in verse 9. He says, I receive grace in Christ. We find forgiveness and grace in Christ. He uses it again in verse 13, and he says, I find faith and love in Christ. Isn't that amazing? Paul doesn't describe himself as a Christian. He describes himself as a man in Christ who, because he is in Christ, has received life even though he's about to die. He's received grace even though he does not deserve it. And because of faith and love, he is ultimately experiencing fullness in life even as he awaits death. Life, grace, faith, love, they're all in Christ. Paul never describes himself as a Christian, but in an almost autobiographical verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 2, uh, Paul seems to refer to himself by saying, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was taken up to the third heaven. Now, many of us get caught up with what, how, how many heavens are there, but that's really not the point. Paul describes his own experience here in the middle of suffering, having a divine revelation from Jesus about who he is because he's in Christ. Do you know it doesn't matter what you encounter in life, if you know you're in Christ, you can experience Christ's life even in your suffering. And Paul wants Timothy to know this. So let me ask you this. What does being in Christ mean for you? Paul wanted Timothy to know what being in Christ meant for him. He wanted Timothy to know that what he was called to be, about 30 years old, we think about that point in time, a pastor, a teacher, a guardian of the gospel, a guardian of the traditions of the church that he would need to ensure did not die with Paul. All of that was possible because Timothy was also in Christ. Do you know all that God is asking you to be is possible? Not because of something you can do, but because through your faith you have been placed into Christ, and as a result of that, you are now in Christ, and Christ is in you. You ever feel overwhelmed? You ever feel that there's things that God is asking you to do that you cannot do it? Well, good news, it's not about you. The question is, is Christ in you? And to know whether Christ is in you, do you know that you are in Christ? If you know that, then you will know that whatever challenges you face, God, who has willed you to be what you are will ensure that you can do what only you are called to do. Let me just say this. If you do not think of yourself as someone who is in Christ, you have missed what it means to be a Christian. 
you have also missed how you deal with the challenges of living like the person you have in Christ become. And this is what Paul is going to address in the next part of the first chapter. But a key part of what was important to Paul is that he wanted Timothy to be who he was called to be. And to do that, Timothy needed to recognize that who he was was made full and perfect in Christ. Now, I'm going to continue with this thought in just a moment, but I want to introduce the, the rest of the, of the values to you. The second value that Paul said was important to living faithfully and dying fulfilled is to know. He wanted Timothy to know who he was and whose he was. Friends, we have a generation of young people who do not know who they are. We have got people who are famous on social media becoming the role models for, for our children. Our younger generation need to know who they are and whose they are, that they are significant not because of who they know on social media, but because of the fact that they know Jesus. They are significant because Christ is in them and they are in Christ. This is Paul's point. He talks about knowing, not just in an intellectual sense only, but in a deeply personal sense that is possible because we are in Christ and Christ is in us. He talks about this in so many different ways, a couple of examples. He talks about this in Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. In that verse there, he desires to know the suffering of Christ and also the, the power of Christ. Again, this isn't suffering and then later power. This is suffering and power working hand in hand. Why? Because when I am in Christ, the totality of the Christ experience is ultimately revealed to me. And he wants me to know that, not just in my head. He wants to know that, me to know that deep within the fibers of my being. In 2 Corinthians 11, verses 24 through 27, Paul says, Timothy, uh, to the Corinthian church, he says, I am so weary. I am so weary. But he then goes on to say, my weariness does not lead me to burnout because I know who I am and whose I am. That means that in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, that's why Paul could tell the same people, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know, you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Hold on to that. Labor in the Lord is not in vain. You know. How, does, how are they supposed to know this? In their head? No, they're supposed to know this deep within their heart. You know this as you ultimately know who you are and whose you are. You know this when you realize that you are in Christ and Christ is in you. Oh, are there times when we do not feel like that? Yes, but Paul is saying, in Christ, your emotions are gospeled. He's saying, in Christ, Timothy, when you face the crisis, you do not need to back down. You can step up because you know, you know Christ. How many of us allow our feelings to drive our decisions, not our values? If you allow your feelings to drive what you do rather than the things you value most, then the gap between who you are supposed to be and who you are will grow wider and wider by the day. Being in Christ, knowing Christ, allows your emotions to be gospel, to be changed according to the gospel. 
No, and it's all over the second letter, and it's all over Paul's writings. Thirdly, live. I'll pick this one up in week three. Don't need to say a lot about this, but he says, Timothy, make sure that you are living faithful to Christ throughout your entire life. Again, in pages 66 and 67 in the companion guide, that's where you can see that graphic. The point here is that while being is internal, living is actually the external expression of what is going on in your heart. There should be no um, gap between what we do and who we are, and yet there often is. And so again, we need to, in our daily walk with Christ, we need to avail ourselves of the power of the Spirit that ultimately helps us to walk in Christ-likeness, because it's not possible to do it on our own. And that's why the Christian faith is a journey. The longer you walk in it, the, the more faithful you are in it, the more like Christ you become. That's why in Ephesians 5 verse 1, Paul tells us to imitate Christ. What does that mean? Practice. Put it into practice over and over and over again. Live. Living involves practicing. Lastly here, reproducing. Reproduce the Christ in you to others. The graphic there is on page 80 and 81 in the companion guide. By the way, if you think that that's a lot, you should see the commentary, which is why we didn't give it to you. It's over 300 pages. Reproduce the Christ in you to other people. Again, Paul recognizes that this is a critical juncture in the history of the church. The apostles are being murdered. Paul knows he's next. They've trained up these younger leaders to take on the ministry, and as is often the case, there are probably questions about, have they really got what it takes? And Paul realizes he doesn't have a chance other than to let these people do it because he's got no chance to do it. All he can do is trust God. All he can do is to make sure that what is in him has come through him to others so that there is a legacy that is left behind for other people. Paul is not interested in leaving an inheritance. Christ does that. He wants to leave a legacy for the people. And Timothy is now again, assigned to carry that on. Again, if you want more on that, you can get that through uh, the companion guide online. Now, all four of these values come together in lots of different ways, in lots of different verses, but my favorite is by far 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. I love this. But just look at this from within the lenses of those four values. Paul says to Timothy, the things you have heard me say... See, Paul's commitment was to teach the truth so that others would know the truth and experience, uh, experience that truth. He says, in the presence of many witnesses, Paul had an incarnational ministry. His ministry was about being with other people. There are lots of people who think about leadership as a task. Leadership does has a, have a task, but leadership also has a body. It has a presence. It requires presence. Then he says that key word in trust, reproduce. Timothy, what I have done to you, now you need to do to other people. In trust, reproduce. To reliable people, live. Living godly lives who will also be qualified to teach others. The reproduction continues. When you look at this letter, you see these four values pretty much over everything that Paul does. Be, know, live and reproduce. Now, here's the question. I think these four values 
whether Paul would use them or not, are really good descriptions of what was really important to Paul. Here's the question I want you to think about this week. What's really important to you? What's really important to you? If you were going to write a parting letter to those that you love, and somebody were to take that letter after you're gone, and they would sit down, and they would work over that letter in the way that we are working over the letter of Paul, what would those words say about what was important to you? And here's the point. The value of thinking through your values is that you live them before you die, not after. Right? The value of values is that you live them while you live, not that other people have to pick through them and discern them after you're dead. Do you know that the people around you already know what is important to you? Do you realize the people around you already know what it is that you're trying to be? Do you know that the people around you already know that you think of yourself in a, in a certain way? Do you know that the people around you can see whether there is consistency between what you want to be and the way you're living your life? Do you know that your responsibility is not simply to pass on an inheritance to your children, parents, but actually to leave them a legacy? Foundation stones that will ultimately make uh, the, the best opportunity for them to thrive in this life. What is important to you? I think values are so important, and so all too often the decisions that we make are not driven by our values, they're driven by our emotions. I want to encourage you this week, sit down and think about what is truly important to you, and, and ask yourself, am I living that way? In 2015, we started this multi-church. We didn't use that term back then, or at least I didn't publicly, but that's the way I saw it. And I just had this vision that Central has been blessed in so many different ways, and that God didn't want us to keep this blessing to ourselves, but He actually wanted us to share this blessing with the world. He wanted us to share this blessing with the nations and with this nation. But before I did anything, I spent months sitting down and asking myself, God, what is the heart of this supposed to be? Because I realized if God blessed anything, then the bigger it would get, the more complicated it would get, and the more complicated it would get, the more likely it is that we would have to make critical decisions. And I wanted to make sure that we made critical decisions that were based on the heart that God had for this ministry. And so I spent months in my own quiet times just saying, God, what do you want these values to be? And, and so there were five of them. We kind of published four, but there are five of them. The first one was, hey, we want to recognize that there is only one church. The value is unified. There is only one church. Far more important than the local church is the invisible church of Jesus Christ. That's the theological term. In Holland, there are 170 churches, but there is only one church. It's His church. And so when we did this, we wanted to make sure 
that we recognize that at the heart of the church of Jesus, at the heart of what we were doing, was prioritizing His church above our own. Do you realize how, how risky that is for a pastor and for elders to actually do? But as I thought about this, Christianity is the only religion in the world that is quite literally, truly one generation away from extinction anyway. And the best thing I can do is to live my life knowing that if, if God ends it, then something will live after it. So we talk about this in terms of a kingdom mindset. Everything we try to do with our churches, the nine churches in this, in this nation, and the, the, the ten around the world, is the additional ten, 19 churches, is driven by this kingdom mindset. And when we recognize that there is only one church, then this church invisible actually drives so much of what we do. It's a value that we have. There's only one church. It's His church. And that has ethical implications for us, and I'm going to talk about that in week number three. The fact that the values that we have don't just determine what we do, they actually tell us what we will never do. Because there's only one church, and it's His church, I will never act in a way that puts my church before His. It's pretty obvious, right? Hard to do. We're unified. Second value that we came up with was we believed in localized leadership. We just recognize that if, if God was going to bless this, then leadership is always local. We use this term when it comes to mission, right? Global mission and local mission. You do realize that all mission is actually local because it needs God's people in a certain place to be able to do mission. We have these terms but the mission is always done by people on the ground. The mission is rarely done by a pastor on a screen, people. It's actually done by people in the pews. That's where it's done. God will use any technology, but the reality, the nitty-gritty of discipling a person in Christ requires face-to-face -face relationships. You know what all of you have that the people watching online do not have? one another. It's always localized. It's always personal. And so when we did this, we're like, we will never act in a way where kind of centralized leadership is more important than localized leadership. The third one here is decentralized decision-making, recognizing that that is the case. We just recognize that at the value of all of this is that local people leading local ministries in, local, in strategic places around the world, they had to have the power to make their own decisions and determine what God wanted them to do in their ministry. Again, that is so difficult to do when so much responsibility is held right here. But this is a value of ministry. Do you realize that when you actually entrust, 2 Timothy 2.2, entrust people on the very fringes, on the very edges of ministry, the ones who may not quite fit with where you are, the people on the edges are usually far more comfortable living in the world that is about to appear than you are. Do you realize that our younger people are far more comfortable living in the world that is going to be than are we? You know, if we empower them to make decisions, then the church of Jesus Christ could never be safer. Decentralized. What does that mean? It means that we will resist the command and conquer style of leadership. The, uh, the, the next one here is synchronized. We just recognize that 
We serve best when we leverage what God has given to us and we just find ways of giving it to other people. We will never act in a way that will require people to always do it the way we do it, but we will try and do whatever we can do to help provide our pastors and our churches with whatever they need to do what God calls them to do. The last one here is diversified expression. We will resist the idea that our way is God's way. And it's the only way that God knows. So when you look at our multi-churches, one church, even though there are 19 churches, the reality is that all of the expressions are completely different. You've got Captivate in San Diego. You've got The Well in Tennessee. You've got Redeemer City in, in uh, Tampa. You've got TLC, the local church in Grand Rapids. You've got LifeBridge in South Haven. You've got Overflow in Benton Harbor. I can keep going. All of them look and feel different. What a privilege it is to go into those churches and be reminded of what it's going to be like in heaven. We refuse this idea that everything has to be the same, has to be the way that we like it. We don't do that. And that's why I'm comfortable with parts of the worship that we have not being the way that I would like it, because who says my way is the right way? Usually every lead pastor that there is, but not this one. In week number three, I'll talk about how the values that we have need to guide the life that we live. They need to guide the decisions that we make, and all too often, it's not these values that have come to us because we've bathed our life in prayer before God, saying, God, what am I supposed to be? All too often, our decisions are made on the basis of the way we feel. Friends, this time our feelings were gospeled. It's time our feelings were sanctified. It's time our feelings were given the proper place that they have. But that'll never happen if you don't know what's important to you. So hopefully you can think about the way this will work. This week, let me encourage you, think about what is important to you. Think about this in, in writing a letter to those people that are important to you. What would you say to them? And then after you've written this letter, pick it up and become the theologian kind of uh, reading and, and exegeting your own letter and say, these things are truly important to me. And, and then go and ask yourself, do I live like this? And if you don't, I believe that God wants to do a work in your heart to show you what it really means to live like Christ. This is what Paul is trying to do with Timothy because he knows he's got not long left. And he knows that there is no success without succession, and he does not want this thing to die with him. That's how serious this is. Now, in chapter 1, the way we're doing this is that he's talking about being. Three times Paul says, I'm in Christ, and because I'm in Christ, I have life, I have grace, I have faith, I have hope. I recognize that even though I am dying, I'm living. I recognize that for me to die is gain, for me to live is Christ. He, he just recognized that in Christ, his emotions can be combated in Christ, his situation can take another dimension, and he says, Timothy, I want you to have the same perspective. And he offers him a parting challenge 
And that's, Timothy, here's what I want. I, I want you to be courageous. I want you to be courageous. We, we've talked a little bit about how difficult it was in the Roman world at that point in time, but let's set this within the context, this challenge to be courageous within the context of the text. So you'll see in the screen, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. This is what Paul says to Timothy. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of hands. For the Spirit of God does not give us, uh, does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. That's the NIV translation. Many of us prefer the other translations. We have not received a spirit of fear, but of love, power, and self-control. That's the verse, right? So do not be ashamed of the testimony about the Lord or of me, His prisoner. Rather, join me in suffering for the gospel. By the way, read Hebrews, the last two verses of Hebrews. The, the author of Hebrews, whoever that is, basically says, Timothy has now been released from prison. Timothy would join Paul in suffering in the way that Paul did. Rather join, me, uh, rather join me in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God, he has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of His own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Now, in these verses, Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, this is what I want you to do. I want you to stir up the gift that was given to you. God hasn't given you this spirit of timidity or the spirit of fear, but you've been given this spirit of love, of power, and of a sound mind. I imagine with me if Timothy was timid. There is some debate about, is Paul speaking literally to Timothy? Uh, the word timidity there is like fear or cowardice. Is that really what Paul felt Timothy was tempted with? Some people think it is, other people think it is not. But I think that that's irrelevant because what Paul is saying to Timothy is, Timothy, this, no matter what you feel about the situation that you're in, your vocation as a pastor, as a teacher, as a guardian of the gospel, and as a guardian of the tradition has meant that you have been called by the will of God, placed into Christ through your faith, and in Christ, all of Christ's life is yours. In other words, it is never an excuse for you and I to look at our own character defects to look at what we are not and think, I will never be that and I can never do that. Because if God wants you to do it, you're in Christ and all of Christ's blessings are yours to do it. Now, that's the truth. Now, just suppose with me that Timothy really is timid, that he really does lack courage. I, I bet that we've got people in here today, not that I'm a bet man shouldn't say that, should I? But anyway, uh, we've got people in here today who probably would not consider themselves as courageous people or brave people. Some of you probably have a, a challenge picking up the phone and, and making a reservation. 
You know, in the early years of our marriage, that was me. I would always get Vipka to make the reservation, and I would actually make the excuse, we lived in Germany, that my German was pretty bad and they can't understand me. The funny thing is, we're over here, we go through a drive-thru and nobody understands us anyway. We get the kids to order. But in truth, I did not like asking people for things. There was a timidity on the inside of me, and there was a part of me when I was faced with this, I would look at this and I would go, oh, Lord, this just isn't me. Any of you like that? Remember a number of years ago, I asked one of my kids to, to do something on the stage with me, and they looked at me and said, Dad, this is you, but it isn't me. Let me be me. <laughs> to which I said, in Christ, you can do all things, get on the stage, right? <laughs> but you understand the battle with this. It's, a, it's actually a real, it's a real battle. There, there are certain things that life calls us to do that we look at and we think, it's just not me. Sorry, it's just not me. But Paul says he's, a, he's an apostle by the will of God. Guess what? If you are where you are by the will of God, then you can never say, this isn't me, because if you are into Christ, you are in Christ. If you are in Christ, Christ is in you. And when you are weak, do you want to finish the sentence? Then you are strong. Do you realize that the reason it is so important to open your Bible every day, to, to, to have the Bible read you, not you read it, is for you to recognize that where you are weak, He is strong. For you to recognize that every inclination you have to back away, to shy away, rather than to step in and to step up, actually does not reflect the Christ in you at all. And shame on you to think that. Paul is saying, Timothy, be who you are called to be. And he doesn't give Timothy the excuse of saying, but Paul, it's just not me. You realize psychologists are understanding this too, right? If I had time, I would go into Thomas Aquinas, I'm already three minutes over. If I had time, I'd go into Thomas Aquinas. He would say that there were four uh, kind of key virtues, four values. One of those is, is courage. And he talks about these values, these four values that are like the, the tissues that connect all of the muscles of the body together. And he exposited Scripture to say that, hey, it is actually practicing the, 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 these four values that enable you to do what Christ has called you to do. Ephesians 5.1, be imitators of Christ. Practice it, practice it, practice it. Craig, I'm, ju I'm just not courageous. I I'm timid. I'm shy. I just can't do this thing. Wait a minute. You're in Christ. Christ is in you. So guess what? Practice the presence of Christ. What that looks like practically is that in, in certain situations that God places us in, where we know we need to step in, step up, speak in, speak up, where we need to do something that isn't going to be popular, that is actually probably going to cause harm in the beginning rather than actually good, but we just know that we've got to do this thing, but we don't want to do this thing. What we need to do in that moment is say, okay, God, I know that through my faith I have been placed into Christ. That means I am in Christ and Christ is in me. I know that because Jesus died, was buried and rose, because Jesus went up, the Spirit of God came down, and that I'm in, indwelt by the Spirit of God, whose role it is to make me more like Christ. So in this moment, Father, I do not want to do this, but it's no longer I that live, but Christ that lives. And so I ask you, Father, through the Spirit to enable me to do this very thing that I do not want to do and I'm not capable of doing. 
That's how life works. And in that moment, you don't become courageous, you become brave. There is a difference between bravery and courage. Bravery is an action. You do bravery often enough, you become a character of courage. Just because you do something once doesn't give you the character. Just because you decide to do the right thing by, uh, by your employer once doesn't mean to say you've got integrity. Integrity is actually when you do the right thing over and over and over again that people say, man, that's the person of integrity. This is the way it works with courage. It works with one step of bravery. Speaking up just once, and then twice, and then three times, and four times, and all of a sudden, courage becomes a part of your character. Why? Psychologists would say because you practiced it. The Bible would say it's because you're practicing the presence of Christ. And when you are in Christ, Christ is in you. And the role of the Spirit in you is to make you more like the Christ in you. It's not that sin dies, it's that sin no longer reigns. Sinclair Ferguson says something like, you know, years ago there was this movement called Name It and Claim It. In Wales, when I was a teenager, there was this movement called Name It and Claim It. This whole idea that we can, because we're in Christ, we can just name health and claim health. And he said, that's not true, but it is true because you were in Christ, you can name it and slay it. That's true. You can name the character of Christ and you can slay the part of you that does not want to live like Christ. All of this is possible because we are children of God. I'm going to call the team back to the stage. And I've asked them to sing that old song. Well, it's not that old, but it's an older hymn, In Christ Alone. In Christ alone, my hope is found. Paul wanted Timothy to know that no matter what came against him, in Christ, there was life, there was grace, there was faith, and there was love. In Christ is everything that we will ever need. When someone asks you who you are, it probably won't make sense for you to say, I am a man or I am a woman in Christ. You're probably going to say something like, I am a follower of Jesus or I am a Christian but whenever we say that word, in our hearts, let's just realize what the picture is. Through faith, in the finished work of Jesus that we're going to sing about, we have been picked up, placed into Christ, so that we are in Christ. It's no longer we that live, but Christ who lives in us. And now, because we are in Christ... Christ is in us, and that means that we've become new creations. The old is gone, the new has come. And when you discover who you are called to be and what you are called to be, it doesn't matter that you think that you haven't got what it takes to do it. What does matter is that you press into Jesus more deeply and discover that He has given you all you need to do what He's called you to do. Amen? This is what matters. This is what the Christian faith is about. So I hope that as we sing these words, that you will just join and just belt these words out because these words are so true. In Christ alone, our hope is found. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you.
for the truth of the gospel, for the words of Paul that just inspired Timothy and inspire us to be what we were called to be. And Father, it is not through our own effort. It is because we are in Christ and Christ is in us and that we've been indwelt by the Holy Spirit who has sealed us and who is changing us so that we can live out of the new creation that we in Christ have become. And I pray, Father, that as we sing these words, you would seal the truth of that message to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen.